Good work. Join with me in Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Two weeks ago I said that Genesis 3.15 was terribly intimidating, and I've just chosen the text that intimidates me even more. Never heard a message on this text at all my entire life, but God is good, and if you do get anything, however, out of the message this morning, uh, it will be because He's been very gracious and kind and not because of the skill or the ability of the preacher. There, there is a church in the Italian Alps that is a bit unusual. It's got a number of statues of Old Testament prophets. And they're different prophets, but they are all gazing and pointing in the same direction. And that is they're gazing and they are pointing towards another statue, which is a statue of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's what the prophets do. That's what the Old Testament does. And Moses was called a prophet, and so uh, we, it comes to us as no surprise that Moses points to Jesus Christ. Genesis 49, for most of us, is a very obscure text that nevertheless points to Jesus Christ. He is exalted and magnified here, actually through one of his ancestors. Now, the question arises then, why was prophecy ever even necessary? Why is it necessary to have such a thing as prophecy? Why is it necessary, in other words, to go into detail, specific, measurable detail, about the future of someone who is to come, or some other event? Now, that's the remarkable thing about biblical prophecy that you do not find in any other of the other so-called sacred texts of the other world religions. And that is detailed, measurable, specific predictions about the future. And that's what you find in this text and in Messianic prophecy. Uh, I I love to read mathematicians as they apply uh, the science of probability to there being one person in history to fulfill all of those prophecies. And there are a number of those out there I won't go into today. But the question is, why was prophecy even necessary? Well, this is an era before cameras and photographs. It happens to be a selfie-free environment in many ways. There are no pictures that can be taken, and so there had to be some way to identify the Messiah when he came along. I used to pick people up at the airport uh, through the years, before the advent of cell phones and camera phones, and I would have some description of these strangers that I would pick up. Their height, the clothing that they would be wearing, perhaps even their hairstyle, and that would be a way to identify the person I was to Uh, to pick up and carry and take where they were to go. Well, the prophecies of the Scripture are much the same way, uh, especially when they come to Jesus Christ. There are no selfies, there are no cameras, there are no photographs on that day. And so the prophecies are identifying marks of the Messiah. In this case, uh, messianic prophecy, that is what it is. Now, large portions of Genesis 49 address then not only the Messiah, but also the sons of Jacob. And there's one in particular in verses 8 through 12 we're going to concentrate on this morning, but uh, Jacob ends up uh, communicating a blessing to many of his sons. Uh, The word blessing uh, is the Old Testament word barak, and it's used 516 times in Scripture. Now the other word, uh, the the, uh, opposite word, curse is used fewer than 200 times about 190 times in the old testament 
I think mere, you know, simple arithmetic will communicate God has more intention and desire to bless than he does to curse. The curse is real, indeed, but God overcomes that with marvelous blessing. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, communicate an awful lot of these blessings. And they do so in such a way that the blessing happens to be a prophecy of an individual's future. In other words, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were prophets. And a patriarchal blessing, then, consists of a prophecy concerning a child's future. And often, these prophecies, these prophetic blessings, revealed God's plan for the kingdom and strengthened those who received them. And so, this happens in Genesis 49. A few centuries later, all of the descendants of these 12 sons in Genesis 49 would be going through terrible upheaval in their lives as the Pharaoh ascended the throne who did not know Joseph and would treat them as slaves. They received these blessings and they think we can get through this. We can make it through this. In fact, God through our father Jacob said that we were going to thrive through this. So in Genesis 49, Jacob announces a future blessing especially on Judah. And that uh, leads me for us to consider a couple of things. One is blessing on Jacob's sons. That's verses 1 through 27. Um, And it's very structured, very developed here. There were the sons of Leah, born Jacob's sons born through Leah in verses 3 through 15. They're, They're sons then of the servants of Leah and Rachel in verses 16 to 21. Then they're sons of Rachel in verses 23 through 27. I want you to read with me, though, verses 3 through 7. He begins with Reuben as firstborn, and there's not much blessing here. He, goes, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it and went up to my couch. In other words, he committed immorality. Then verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Back in Genesis 34, to seek revenge for what happened to their sister, They went and slaughtered an entire village for what one young man did to their sister. And just to add insult to injury, they hamstrung the oxen. No particular reason, they just hamstrung the oxen. And then Jacob says in verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that is precisely what uh, happened uh, with them. Reuben then pretty much vanished away. He still uh, exists and went on until the uh, invasion of the Assyrians in 722. We can't find any Reubenites today. In fact, the northern ten tribes of Israel, we don't find any of them. But Reuben did go on, but he didn't have much of the life of a firstborn child in these centuries that they would have, that descendants would end up having in their lives. In fact, they did join in number 16 with the sons of Korah in rebelling against Moses, of all people. And then Simeon and Levi were dispersed throughout Israel. Levi did not receive an inheritance in the promised land. He did not have a land. He was given a few cities, but that was it. And then Simeon 
eventually disappeared altogether. Went from thousands and thousands down to 22,000 in the tribe of Simeon. Became the smallest and eventually was absorbed into the tribe of Judah and completely eliminated from Israel. So despite their exalted status, despite their family heritage, despite the blessings of God, these boys found a way to soil and pollute their souls and reputations. They became a miserable lot in many ways. And last I heard, they were blaming the Russians for it. But God will have none of that. But in these circumstances, that's precisely what they did. They lost an opportunity. Reminds me of the preacher who told his congregation on a Sunday, we're going to have a funeral next week. I need you all to gather, and I'm not going to announce the name. So the church showed up. They packed it out. They were terribly curious, and they wanted to be respectful of the deceased, and so they filled the place up. And he did something that's a bit unusual in the southeast. It's a bit more common in the west, and that is when the funeral message was done, he had them all stand and row by row come by the casket where they opened it for one last viewing. And when they walked by, there was a mirror. There was a mirror. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what happens to a life and reputation that violates the Word of God. That is what takes place. And let me ask you something. If these fellows needed grace, is there anybody in the world that doesn't need it as well? So there is the blessing of Jacob's sons. They, they were told straight about their lives. But then there's the blessing of Judah in verses 8 through 12. It's a prophetic blessing, and it includes several items here. There is... A prophetic blessing of praise. Look at verse 8 and the first part. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Now let me ask you, do you hear another Hebrew and even English word in the word Judah? Judah. Well, Judah was short and it became the name for all the Israelites. Judah. Same word in Hebrew, uh, nearly identical. They became the Jews. And after the exile, they were known by the name given to Judah. They went from being the Hebrews to being Israel to being the Jews named after Judah. And so Judah had this kind of praise. His, his name was perpetuated and even is perpetuated today in blessing. In Numbers chapter 1 and in chapter 26, whenever Judah would march to war, excuse me, Israel would march to war, Judah was at the front of the line, had the praise and the dignity of being the first in line. Well, one of Judah's sons was praised in that way in the city of David. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, where angels came to praise him. And then in the, in the, in the apocalypse, in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, Jesus Christ is exalted and magnified. And so there is a prophetic blessing of praise here. Judah, your descendants will be exalted and mighty in praise. You'll receive the attention of Israel. Heard about this man who had a cancer of the tongue. They tried to treat it, but they treated it to no avail. He had to have the tongue removed. And right before anesthesia was applied and before he went into surgery, the surgeon gathered his family around his bed and asked him, before we do this procedure, is there anything that you have left to say? Anything you want to say? And this father said, praise be to Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. And that's the last thing he said. That's entirely consistent with the notion of Judah. There's a prophetic blessing of praise. Then there's a prophetic blessing of power. 
He is the one with power. Again, he was considered the most powerful, so he was put in the front of the line anytime Israel went into war of the 12 tribes. In Revelation 6 through 19, there will be a great power unleashed by God on the earth uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ, and all evil and all wickedness and all structures that oppose the name of Christ will be eliminated. This is something that no government has ever been able to achieve. Uh, look at the rest of verse 8. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a universal symbol of power and royalty. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Don't rouse him at all. And so he has power. Then Jacob said he'll have preeminence. Uh, at the end of verse uh, 8, your father's children shall bow down before you. Then verse 10, the scepter, a symbol of rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. He has preeminence. Well, a descendant of Judah would pick this up, and he would become who you and I know is King David in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, born in Bethlehem. This same dignity transferred to Jesus Christ because in Matthew 1.1, he is called the son of David. And so there is a blessing here of preeminence. Then there's a blessing of perpetuity. Verse 10, the scepter, the rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, or of the Gentiles. The whole earth shall obey him. So we're talking about an expansionist kingdom, and an expansionist kingdom, an expansionist sovereignty and rule, that shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Well, are you familiar with the Hebrew word shalom? Have you heard the word shalom? It means peace and rest and tranquility. What this text is saying here is that the power and rule and kingdom of Almighty God shall not depart from a son of Judah until that final peace comes. Well, that will happen after Jesus Christ rules upon the earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he says he will turn it back over, all the kingdom, back to God, his Father. He even offers peace today. And you'll have the opportunity to open your heart to Christ and meet that peace when we sing after the message. Because he promises, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Then there is a prophetic uh, promise of prosperity in verses 11 and 12. Binding his donkey to the vine. Now that's not something typical people would do. They were very careful to preserve and protect their vines. But a donkey gets near a vine and he's going to eat it. Well, the notion is, is that when Judah rules, or a son of Judah rules, the rule shall be so prosperous, you can waste grapes. You can tie donkeys to vines and let them eat all they want because there's plenty to go around. And then it goes on to say, He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. In other words, the fruit of the vine shall be so plentiful and so abundant, so plentiful and so abundant, you can wash your clothes in it. Well, that's not typically what you would do, but the uh, expense to manufacture this will be so low you can use it to clean your clothes. Jesus Christ brings that kind of prosperity when his kingdom comes. Now that was uh, related to Judah in Psalm 68 and Psalm 72. And in our day, God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the Magi, the wise men from the east noticed and acknowledged that when they came to Jesus, they brought abundance to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, to him shall be the obedience of the people 
in verse number 10. And so, when Jacob blesses Judah, he says that from Judah's descendants would come the king and savior of the world. And Jesus is identified as a descendant of Judah in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. Well, I appreciate you uh, traveling with me through the stratosphere as we've uh, gone up, but I want to land this plane now. We're talking about blessing you. There are a, no- a number of enormous blessings that can come on this day to anyone who chooses to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's true when it comes to our failures. God can do great things with a messy family. Charles Spurgeon used to say, God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. There is never any legitimate reason to lose hope for your family. Even Judah had a spotted past. Just read uh, Genesis chapter 38. It's a mess. And I remember as a young man paying careful attention to Genesis and reading through it, and I saw the sins of Abraham, and they were many. Isaac repeated them. Jacob just got worse. He fell off the cliff. My goodness, and didn't get it right towards, until towards the end of his life. And nevertheless, God got Israel into Egypt and Israel out of Egypt and did all that he did through the nation of Israel, and Jesus Christ was still born. Oftentimes, not because of Israel, but oftentimes in spite of it. Ladies and gentlemen, God can do a great work through a messy family. But then there's another thing, and that is faith. We can be certain that Jesus Christ is God's only anointed and commissioned Messiah. Only Jesus Christ fits the profile of Old Testament prophecy. Only He, only He has the identifying signs. And one of those happens to be is that He's someone who is related to Judah. And and in fact, really only Jesus can claim to be related to Judah and produce a genealogical record that proves that. Because in A.D. 70, Titan, the Roman general, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple where the Jewish archives with all the family records happened to be. There really is no way to establish a record that anyone is a descendant of anyone in uh, the nation of Israel except Jesus Christ, whose genealogical record is included in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. Only Jesus fits the profile. And so we can be certain Jesus is the only commissioned Messiah. Ladies and gentlemen, the other gods and world religions of the earth do not fit that profile. They don't even dare to make detailed, specific, measurable prophecy of their own faith, of their own religions and their own founders because you have to have omniscience to do that. Only God does, and He puts it in His Word. We can be certain Jesus is God's only commissioned Messiah. But then fellowship. That's a third area of blessing. So often, what some families live with are decisions that were made a generation and sometimes two and three generations ago. Oftentimes, family members can set the course for successive generations. That's been one of the burdens of my heart, to make sure my decisions fall into the boundaries of the will of God because I have people coming after me that depend on me, and I've got to do God's will. Now, when it came to Judah, that's the case here. Because, as I told you before, Simeon, his numbers declined, and he got so small, small, he couldn't sustain a tribe. And so Simeon was folded in 
to Judah. Simeon with his anger. Simeon with his revenge. Simeon with, Simeon with his cruelty. Simeon with his recklessness. Simeon with his carelessness was still folded into the kingly and royal tribe. Simeon made it bad for his descendants and by God's grace was folded into the preeminent tribe of Israel. And Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, offers that to anyone who is broken and humble in this day. In other words, just as Simeon was folded into the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ is willing to take any sinner and fold that person into himself. And that's why Paul talks so much about being in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All of Simeon's old things were passed away once he was folded into Judah. And behold, all things have become new. All the sin, all the shame, all the embarrassment, all the failure is set aside when you're folded into Jesus Christ. And all the new things of his gift of grace are brought to bear. So Jesus is not someone who avoids sinners. Jesus Christ pursues them and treats them. He administers his healing salve to every one of them. In fact, Jesus would say of himself, it's not the righteous, or excuse me, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It makes no more sense for Jesus and his churches to avoid sinners than it does for doctors to avoid patients. If they'll take their medicine, he wants them. He loves them. And Jesus also doesn't merely have an office to which sick people visit. Jesus is a doctor who pursues sick people and makes house calls. And so that's why he said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I heard of a Chicago businessman that walked out one day of uh, an office building when it was snowing and sleeting terribly in Chicago and Mixed with the wind, it, it was a miserable day. And he saw a boy huddled up in a corner somewhere. And he went to the young man and asked him how he could help. And the little boy just told him his story. He said his father gave him 20 bucks to go pick up a few groceries at a local store. And the wind was such that uh, he lost hold of the $20 bill and it got away and he was afraid to go home. His dad had a terrible drinking problem. He's a mean drunk when he got intoxicated. So he was waiting out there in the cold until dad went to sleep and fell asleep and he'd go back home. Well, the man picked up the little boy and went to the local grocery store and bought the groceries he needed and escorted him home. And before he left, the little boy grabbed hold of his leg and said, I sure do wish you were my dad. And that businessman said, I walked around four more blocks looking for a boy who'd lost his $20. Do you know Jesus Christ pursues us in the same way? He's on a mission. He's on a mission of love. And no matter how you've embarrassed yourself, no matter how you have embarrassed your family, no matter how you have failed, Jesus Christ is pursuing you with everything he has to bring you into a posture of grace with him. Today, you can have it. You can have it. He bled for our sins, was buried, raised again. He's as, as much alive today and more alive than any person who's ever lived. And he can cancel the guilt and failure and shame of sin. If you'll fling open your heart and life and say yes to him. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want us to pray about it and give you the opportunity to respond. 
Father, thank you for the good name of Jesus Christ. We magnify him with everything we have, and we praise you that he's real. And we thank you that so many of us here have met his marvelous and indescribable grace. Lord, I want to pray for friends today that need to open up their heart and life to you and say yes to Jesus. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, turn them and let them know you? Would you please be kind and loving? I don't see any advantage at all for anyone going another day suffering under guilt and failure. And then, Father, there are some here that, well, these days have brought up an awful lot of anxiety um, with celebrations and family and busyness and schedules. And they need an extra measure of your grace today. Would you help them this time? And as you continue to pray, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, we're going to ask you to come and turn your heart and life over to the Lord. If you need our help, we've got staff here that will be glad to help you. Maybe you need to come give your heart and life to Christ. Maybe you need to become part of Beach Haven. Maybe there's another need that you have. But now's the time to meet the God of grace who waits for you and has actually pursued you to this very point. He is here. He is ready. He doesn't need to do anything else. You can call on his name and find him powerful and gracious. Let me finish my prayer. And after we finish, we'll sing and we'll invite you to come. Dear God, thank you. Please make Jesus real now. Please gather up all the faith and trust and repentance you designed this day and this hour to accumulate to the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.